Welcome to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. IFA Talk is for professional investors only. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us for the latest episode of IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast, where we talk to people who matter about things that matter in the world of financial services. I'm Brandon Russell, and joining me on the podcast today is my co-host and IFA Magazine editor, Sue Whitbread. Today's conversation is about the ever-changing world of pensions. Oh, indeed. And hi, everyone. It's Sue here. And as Brandon's just said, we're talking about pensions today, as well as some other important developments that will impact advisors. And I'm delighted to welcome Stephen Cameron, who is Aegon's Pensions Director. And Stephen certainly knows a thing or two about this subject, and he's our guest today. So Stephen, hello, welcome to IFA Talk. Yes, hello, Sue, and good, glad to be here. Uh, our privilege to get you on the podcast, and perhaps we could kick off briefly for those of our listeners who don't already know you or who know of you. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your experience and what it is you do at Aegon. Sure. Um, well, I've been at Aegon for over 25 years now, so I've seen quite a few pensions developments over, oh. over the years. Yeah. Um, and I effectively head up our public affairs kind of activity. So that involves keeping an eye out for any proposals from the government or the regulators that would impact on pensions or the advice uh, market. Um, try to understand what these mean for Aegon, but also hopefully share some of that insight with the advisor community. I also head up our lobbying or influencing work, so I'll respond to all the consultations that, that, that come out uh, year, on, year on year. Um, and I also spend quite a lot of time uh, commenting in the media on these developments. And certainly most recently, I've been spending a lot of time speaking to advisors on topics like the new consumer duty, which of course will impact on all of us. Yeah, and I think we're going to be talking about that a little bit today as well, aren't we, which would be good. So I'm going to take you back now to last November and the, the latest budget, just a few weeks after the previous budget. Anyway, uh, I wonder what you saw as the key consequences of that budget. Yeah, 2022 wasn't the best of years, was it? So I think it's one that we'd probably oh. like to forget in many regards. It did start off quite optimistically. I think we were all hoping that we had seen the worst of the pandemic. Uh, but then, of course, we had the war in Ukraine, which, of course, continues. We had a fast accelerating cost of living crisis. And then, of course, we had changes in government and a disastrous mini budget, which really um, led to a loss of worldwide confidence and how the UK manages its finances. So um, I saw the November budget as very much a needs-must budget. It was one where the government had to tackle some really big issues, um, and some of these weren't the, the, the most pleasant to, to, to listen to. I think the key outcome of this as we head into 2023 is that most people, pretty much all taxpayers, will be paying more tax than they would have been paying had uh, we not had those those budget changes. Now, a lot of that will go to support good causes. We need to help rebuild the NHS, for example, but I'm sure it will mean that many people will want to revisit their finances and check that, that they aren't paying more tax than they need to unnecessarily. And of course, that's very much where advisors can step in and, and offer so much help. One of the single biggest changes is the, the freezing of the, the income tax thresholds, which of course now will continue another two years till, till 2028. 
And that, of course, is really impactful when, particularly when inflation is high. In fact, it can be more impactful on low and modest earners than an increase of, say, 1% in the, in the rates of tax. But I think that's something that most people probably don't recognise. So what we'll find is that year on year, every April, we'll have more and more people who will move into the higher, a higher tax uh, uh, band. Uh, many, probably millions, into the, the higher rate tax uh, band. And of course, with the reduction in the additional rate thre threshold, we'll also see more and more people paying 45% tax. And if, like me, you're in Scotland, um, uh, the, the tax rates are higher again because the Scottish government has set the rates at 42% and 47%. So... Um, Clearly, if individuals do want to consider how to not move into the next tax band, one way of doing that, as we all know, is to pay more into your pension. Now, not everyone can afford that right now, but yeah. if you can, and if it's something that you know you should be doing anyway, then it can be a really good way of avoiding moving up into that next tax band. And I think the other tax change that's very relevant in the, the advice space is around wealth taxes. So first there was the freeze on the, the inheritance tax threshold, which will mean more people will in future pay inheritance tax, but mm -hmm. might want to manage that. And the other is the, the CGT exempt allowance, which is more than coming down to less than half its current level this coming mm -hmm. April, and then is halving again the following April. So let's... It's a very big change, and it's certainly something that, that advisors will want to talk about, the, the benefits of being an appropriate tax wrapper going forward. <clears throat> Stephen, one thing I think our listeners will be intrigued to know is whether or not you were surprised that the state pension triple lock is being maintained. That was a really hard one to call. It was very, uh, very much, uh, it could have gone more than one way, obviously. They were chopping and um, changing their minds all over the place. <laughs> that's right. It was the hokey-cokey of, of, of state pensions. Um, <laughs> Overall, I had come to the conclusion that they would maintain it, and I am pleased that they did maintain it this year. Now, the reason for that is if you think back to the previous year where they didn't grant uh, state pensioners the full triple lock, they, they removed the earnings component of the triple lock. And at that point, again, I supported what they did because the earnings component had been distorted by First of all, furlough and then the return to work, which had meant that the national average earnings had gone down and then had boosted back, back up again. So I think paying state pensioners that distorted increase um, wouldn't have been fair. It wouldn't have been fair on those of working age who, of course, are paying for today's state pensions. But what that meant was that state pensioners last April got an inflation-based increase as of September 2021. Yeah. Um, which was only ha was less than half the rate of inflation that was actually in force when the state pension was increased in April 2022. So um, I think to have reneged again on the triple lock would have been particularly harsh on, on state pensioners. So um, I did think it was the right, the right thing to do this year. Uh, the big question, of course, is how long can that continue? And I think there's a huge question over whether the triple lock works and is fair at a time when we've got very volatile inflation, um, when we've got earnings growth, which again is very volatile, and both of which are way, way above the 2.5% third component of the triple lock. So all eyes, I think, will be on the earnings figures when they come out after the end of July. 
and on the inflation figures, um, which will come out, I think, around November based on inflation as of uh, up to September. Now, uh, yesterday we heard Rishi Sunak commit to reducing inflation to less than half of the current level. So who knows what these metrics will look like later in, in the year. But um, of course, the other factor is we're approaching the next general election. So, you know, that might happen in the second half of, of 2024. So it might be a brave government that doesn't uh, commit to the triple lock for one more year. But thereafter, all bets are off. What will appear in manifestos of all parties? Uh, will the triple lock feature or will we need to move on to something that perhaps is more fit for purpose based on the current uh, economic climate? And just one other thing, sorry to keep banging on about the state pension, but the one other thing I would mention is that in his budget statement, Jeremy Hunt, almost in the same breath, as he committed to the triple lock, talked about a review of the state pension age. And of course, the level of the state pension and the age from which you receive it are the two biggest factors which influence its affordability. So we're due to receive the outcomes of a review into state pension age uh, early this year. And I think that that will also be really interesting. I think the only way is up, and we might be moving up the age up sooner than we might have expected. I think that will mean that more and more people will really struggle to keep working until state pension age. Yeah. So it makes private pension provision even more important. And it's also why at Aegon we've been calling for a review into whether we could make the state pension age a bit more flexible. So rather than simply being allowed to defer your state pension and get it, get it increased, we think it would be good to explore whether it could be taken a little early, up to three years early, with an actuarial reduction. Yeah. Some people hate this idea, um, but I think it's worth exploring because I think it could be a big part of making state pensions a little more flexible in line with what we already have within private pensions. Mm, definitely. As you say, there is the, 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 the gateposts are moving and that proposal, as far as uh, it lands with me, sounds eminently sensible, but we shall have to await the review and see what the changes in the ages, which have been changing quite dramatically over the past 10 years anyway, haven't they? Particularly for women. As we yeah, know. yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to move you on a little bit from pensions now then, Stephen. And we know that July is the deadline for complying with the FCA's new consumer duty. And it's going to be a big change to come into financial services this year. And it's just a step on from all the other TCFs and so on, isn't it? So I wondered if you had any tips for firms uh, in advancing their implementation plans. Yeah, certainly July's coming along quite quickly. Um, when we first got the final rules, it seemed like a reasonable time away, but we're fast approaching that deadline. So a couple of uh, tips that I would have. First of all, keep a close eye out for any future communications which we receive from the FCA. So we've already had a number of, of additional clarifications or, or extensions of what the FCA had previously communicated. Uh, one example of that was a quarterly consultation which came out at the end of last year. It included a range of clarifications on uh, new duty uh, expectations. Now, these were very detailed and many of them probably hadn't even crossed many individuals' minds. You know, we, we hadn't necessarily uh, been thinking mm. about this level of detail. Mm. But there was one that really surprised me because um, it clarified that if a firm a regulated firm is offering services not just to a defined ben 
defined contribution scheme, but even to a defined benefit pension scheme. And if that could materially influence outcomes for the members or beneficiaries of that scheme, then that's also in scope of the new duty. I'd been telling advisors that, no, no, defined benefit pensions are completely out of scope. But of course, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it just shows just how wide reaching yeah. the, the new duty is. There's almost nothing that, that escapes, if you like. So that's one example. Another is the the latest portfolio strategy letter, which the FC issued to financial advisors and intermediaries. It flagged that there will be a, a specific separate communication on the impact of the new duty on financial advisors in the coming months. That's a quote. And I'm a bit concerned about that because we've not got mm. that many months left till we actually implement. So hopefully sooner rather than later. And Although it flagged a future communication, this one included a number of references. One was that um, they would be looking at the appropriateness, cost and fair value of ongoing services. So that will include ongoing advice services. And I think that's going to be one of the focal points of the FC as the new duty begins to embed. Another was it highlighted that the higher standards of care that the new duty brings will mean that many advisor or intermediary firms will require quite a significant shift in culture and behaviour. So again, something to look out for. There were also references to cross-firm or sectoral level investigations and interventions. And we've also separately been told that we'll get some examples of good and poor practice of how firms are implementing the new duties. So I think that would be particularly mm-hmm. helpful to, to look out for. So that's that's in terms of things that the FC will continue to drip feed out. The other tip that I would give is I'd suggest keeping at hand alongside your implementation plan the 39 examples which the FCA gave of questions that they think we as firms should be asking ourselves and questions that they may ask of firms as they begin to assess implementation. These were scattered through the final guidance which the FCA produced. I think it was one of the most helpful additions, if you like, to, to that, that final non-handbook guidance. Mm-hmm. And Not all of those questions will apply to every type of firm. So advisor firms might not have to answer all 39. And also, when they came out, you wouldn't have been able to answer them because it was too early in implementation to know what your answers would be. Mm -hmm. But to me, because there's just so much in the new duty, having those 39 questions beside you keeps reminding you of the key focus points which the FCA will be looking for. So as you move through implementation, yeah, as you move through implementation, have that beside you. Uh, A little plug to Aegon's new consumer duty uh, advisor hub, if I may. Um, On that, one of the things that we have is a template which lists all those questions and um, it gives you the a space to effectively begin to populate your answers. And hopefully then by the end of July, you'll have all your answers ready should the FC ask those of you. So that would be my my second tip. Yeah, it's almost like a checklist there, isn't it? To just work against so that you're addressing the key criteria that the FCA are looking for. So... It's... Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's it's so hard. There's so much to read in the new duty. I've read yeah. it a few times, and every time you read it, you come up with 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 new angles. Um, so yeah, it's good to have that top down kind of reminder of exactly what we're trying to achieve here. You are listening to IFA Talk, IFA Magazine's weekly podcast. 
Subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to be notified as soon as a new episode becomes available. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at IFA Magazine. Looking forward then, uh, what do you see as the next steps for the new duty? Again, I would group this into to two. I think that we could look at the development of some industry standards and also how this will influence FC's future policy development. So if I can cover the, the industry standards first, perhaps, there are a number of areas where it will be really unhelpful if every firm wants to do it their own way. Now, some of the duty you've got to adapt to your way of working, but it would be really helpful if we had some industry standards. For example, manufacturers by the end of April need to provide distributors with the outcome of the value assessments on each of their products. If we all do that a different way, that's going to be so unhelpful to the advisor community. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have a standard template, if you like, or format and level of detail that we all use for that? So I'm hoping that maybe that will evolve in the coming months. And another key area of the new duty is management information and the exchange of that up and down the distribution chain. Again, it would be so helpful if not, we weren't in a situation where every firm was asking for that in a different way. So again, some kind of standardization, some kind of uh, general industry approach to, to what sorts of MI we need to exchange up and down the, the distribution chain. So that's for the industry to, to develop. And I know that some of the trade bodies, for example, are working together on, on seeing if we can if we can develop that. The other area, um, how this will feature in, in future FC policy. A couple of examples here. The policy statement on improving outcomes in non-workplace pensions, which came out late last year. This has a couple of specific new requirements within it. One is for a, a standardised investment strategy or, or default fund, if we use the, the workplace terminology. Um, and to me, the way this links into the new duty is for those who don't want to engage specifically on investment choices, it helps them make a, a better, uh, have a better outcome um, with their investments because they're guided, if you like, into something which should be broadly appropriate for their needs. And the other one is cash warnings. So, uh, sorry, I should have said the first one is for those who are not receiving advice. The yeah. second one on, on cash warnings is for everyone. And if anyone's holding more than 25% of their pension, their non-workplace pension in cash for more than six months, then we will have to issue them a, a warning or alert to highlight the risks of that. And again, the way I see this linking into the new duty is it helps avoid the foreseeable harm that inflation will erode cash savings that are held for too long a time period and to me it's a, a really good live example of how we're going to have to live with uh, regulations which are both bottom-up quite specific and quite targeted at particular parts of the market alongside the new consumer duty which is much more top-down outcomes focused and another example of of that is that's a consultation I'm currently grappling with, the sustainability disclosure requirements and investment labels. And again, there are some really detailed requirements in there, which are also going to need to fit alongside the, the more general approach, which the new consumer duty um, expects of, of our industry. So that's quite a tricky one. 
Uh, the other one I'd like to, to flag is, and this is a consultation paper on broadening access to financial advice for mainstream investments, very, not a very punchy title, um, but this is the one about core investment advice um, and about helping individuals who are deemed to have too much money in cash or excess cash to move some of that uh, perhaps over 10, if they've got over 10,000, to move some of that into a stocks and shares ISA, which focuses on more mainstream investments. There, I didn't I didn't count them uh, manually, but I did a, 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 a sort of uh, word search, and there are 36 references to the new consumer duty in that consultation paper. So that shows just how linked these new policy developments are uh, into, into what the FC is expecting under the new consumer duty. Um, so, yes, interesting, as you say, how, how interconnected this all is, isn't it, Stephen? And I wonder then what your thoughts are, whether you are supportive of those proposals that you just mentioned around core investment advice. You can look at this in, in two ways. You can either look at it in a quite a narrow, focused way, or you can look at this as a step in a broader journey. Um, in its narrower sense, so this is firms with existing advice permissions, being offered the chance to offer a new form of simplified advice on moving cash into stocks and shares ISAs. And that is quite a narrow focus. It's one that I know that the FT is keen to advance and that the government is also quite keen to, to, to see advanced. The question there is how many firms will feel that they have the client base who are already sitting with too much money in cash and therefore to make this service commercially viable? And as part of that, they will need to look very carefully at how the new consumer duty would, would influence the way that they design that service. So that's not going to be a straightforward exercise, but there might be firms out there who see this as a real opportunity, and, and, and hopefully that will be the case. That's less where I think Aegon would be focused, because we don't offer investment advice. Where I'm more interested is, that, that, is, is this wider, wider journey. And this is where I very much welcome where the FC is going here. First, I hope that the current consultation is effectively a first toe in the water, that they're testing the water to see if this can be made to work in one scenario. I hope that if it does, that they'll extend this and, and adapt it to work in other scenarios, including in various pension scenarios, such as Individuals in workplace pensions who perhaps don't have full holistic advice might be helped here mm -hmm. with contribution adequacy or helped to consolidate their various pensions together. So that might be one way of extending. The other reason I support where we're going here is that um, I was really pleased to see that the, both the, the Treasury um, as part of the Financial Services and Markets Bill, but also the FC are now saying that they will revisit um, and carry a holistic review of the advice guidance boundary. And that's been promised in the first quarter of this year, so um, not long to wait for that. And hopefully, um, and the Treasury again alluded to this as part of the discussions around the, the bill, this could pave the way alongside advice for regulated firms to be able to offer what I would call a more personalised form of guidance. Mm -hmm. So this might be helpful if full advice or even the core investment advice isn't viable for certain groups. Mm -hmm. 
yeah. but might be offered as an alternative. And if you think about it, we're, we're 10 years on from the RDR, I can't believe it really. Um, and we also had Farmer, which looked at not just the advice gap, but the, the support gap. And I think this more personalised form of guidance, if we can take that forward, might be another measure to really help close that, that support gap. So fingers crossed we'll see some wider developments emerging from this particular consultation. Well, I'm encouraged that you're encouraged and anything that can help close that advice gap surely has to be a good and positive step. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Stephen, you mentioned some developments involving the Treasury. We have a new pensions minister, Laura Trott. What would you like to see on her priority list? Quite a few things, actually. Um, I think she's got quite a busy year ahead. I'll be really interested to see to what extent Laura follows on from where Guy Opp Opperman left mm. off. And, he was host uh, for a long time, wasn't he? He well, was. He <laughs> That's right, yeah, I think he was pensions minister more than once, wasn't he? Um, yeah, and he had a lot on his agenda, and a lot of that ho hopefully will, will continue, but we may see some, some new developments as well. So what we don't have specifically on the list, first of all, pension dashboards. We've spent mm. so much time and effort getting to where we are. Let's keep the momentum up. Let's not lose focus on getting those over the line. So that would be number one. The next would be around automatic enrolment, and there's a few different dimensions here. Right now, we face a challenge with the cost of living crisis that more people might choose to opt out. So I think we need to look carefully at how we can avoid that happening, perhaps making it more flexible to allow individuals to either stop or pause contributions for a time period, but perhaps for employers, if willing, to continue to pay their share of the contributions going forward. So things like that to, to be considered. Once we come out of the crisis, and hopefully that won't be too, too far in the future, we really need to return to the 2017 proposals, which were all about increasing the, 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 the contribution levels and extending the ages or uh, the ages which qualified for auto-enrolment. But even that's not enough. We need to then look at the next phase again about what we might do, do next. So the 2017 re review didn't move from an 8% standard contribution rate. Maybe we need to think again about that. And somewhere along that line, somewhere along those, we need to think about the self-employed because they've been excluded for far too long and we need mm -hmm. to return to them and have a solution yep. for, for the self-employed. So quite a lot on auto-enrolment. But as well as that, we have a review which is going on around the pension freedoms, which we all know and love in the contract-based mm -hmm. world, extending those to all members of defined contribution trust-based schemes. I really hope that DWP will take that forward by learning from the lessons learned from the, the FCA and also mirroring as closely as possible where the FCA has gone. Because one thing I really dislike is when we have different regulations for contract and trust-based schemes. If you're a member, you could not care which yeah. you're in. You, you know, that doesn't matter to you. So let's keep the rules as closely as possible uh, between trust and contract-based schemes. Another big one is collective defined contribution schemes. Um, and this month, we're expecting a, a new consultation paper First of all, on moving from single employer to multi-employer 
collective defined contribution, but also, in, in my eyes, perhaps more interestingly, exploring whether we could have a decumulation only version of CDC. Now, that might be quite a significant departure from where we are mm. currently with, with the Royal Mail. But I think mm. it's certainly one to explore. And at the moment, we've got annuities, we've got drawdown, but we've not got a lot in between. And it's just mm. possible that collect that decumulation only CDC might offer something that sits mm. somewhere in between. So quite a lot there. Um, I think that both in pensions and but also in FC land and also in Treasury land, we've got a lot going on in the coming year. It might not it might be a challenging year, but I think it's going to be a really interesting year. And the, the best of all is that really um th there is so much changing that there will be a whole raft of new advice opportunities. Mm, well, that's a that's a very positive note to end on there, which I'm sure our listeners would, would concur. And thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast today. It's really good to get your perspective on such important things that are going on. And clearly, there is a lot of work that needs to happen in the next few months with advisors now just checking on their implementation plans. And I will refer back onto that consumer duty hub that you mentioned that Aegon provide as, as being a useful resource. So thank you for joining us today and hopefully we'll chat with you again. Thank you very much for having me along. Thank you. IFA Talk is for investment professionals only. All material has been carefully checked for accuracy, but no responsibility can be accepted for inaccuracies. Whatever appropriate, independent research and whatever necessary legal advice should be sought before acting on any information contained in this podcast. And value of investments and income from them can go down as well as up you may not get back the amount you originally invested.